So we continue our study of the book of Mark. Mark 4, verse 21 to 34 is where we're going today. We're going to hear four parables that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God. So let's read the text. He said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter a seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. When the grain is ripe, and once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, what can we compare the kingdom of God and what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the gospel of the Lord. So we're looking at four parables today. The parable of the lamp, the parable of the measure, the parable of the growing seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. And we're going to walk through each of those parables. Uh, but before we do that, we need to understand the context into which these four parables are given. First of all, we have to understand that they are connected to the parable that we studied last week, the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower. And so if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and hear that message again, because that's going to lay a lot of foundation for what we're going to study here today. And all five of these parables are all teaching about one main theme, and that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the thing that Jesus preached about more than anything else in his ministry, more than forgiveness or heaven or money or sex. He preached about the kingdom of God. And so it's important for us to understand what he means when he talks about the kingdom of God, because in this, in these parables, he's going to explain how the kingdom of God sort of works. But if we don't have a framework for what it is in the first place, these parables are not going to make sense to us. So I thought before we got into the text, we would just do a quick review of what the kingdom of God means. And so we're going to ask two questions of it. First of all, we're going to ask, um, what is it? And then what is, what is it like to live in that kingdom? So what is the kingdom? What is it like to live in that kingdom? So first of all, what is it? It is local and it's pervasive. So Jesus uses the word kingdom on purpose because it's a word that is locally contained. In the same way that if, if you were to travel 500 kilometers south of here, you would no longer be in Canada because there are local parameters to where Canada is and isn't. Jesus says there are parameters, there's a locality to where the kingdom of God is and isn't. He says, you're either in or you're not in. You don't get to pick and choose some of these things and keep some other things at arm's length. You're either in or you're not in. The kingdom of God is a place with defined parameters. And we, we talk about those parameters as the means of grace usually. So the word being preached, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper being administered and received, that's where the kingdom of God is locally contained. 
Um, but this pushes a little bit farther. We'll continue to use Canada as an analogy of a, a kingdom. Uh, people can come into this kingdom, but unless they have status in this kingdom, they can't stay. Right? So basically anybody, not right now, but under normal circumstances can visit Canada. But unless they have a status of a citizen or a work permit or a, a, a permanent residency or something like this, they can't stay forever. Uh, the same is true with the kingdom of God. People are going to experience things of the kingdom of God, but until they have that status, that, that commitment, that legal documentation, they're not in. We would say that's true with the gospel and the kingdom of God as well. There's a commitment to believing what the Bible says. There's legal documentation in baptism, which saves you and gives you a clear conscience before God. There are, is a locality to this kingdom. It's also pervasive. By that, I mean that it influences everything that goes on in your life. So again, using Canada as an analogy, if you live in Canada, every decision you make, everything you do is influenced by the fact that you live here. So just a small microcosmic example. If you're going to go to the store in Canada, you need Canadian dollars to buy things at that store. You can't give them ruples or euros or anything like this because they won't accept it. They only accept Canadian dollars because you live here. And so you have to think, okay, if I'm going to the store, I need these things. That's how it works in this country. The same thing is true with, with the kingdom of God. That as we think about every single thing we do, if we are in that kingdom, it's going to influence how we make our decisions, what we bring along, what we value, how we talk, etc. Now in Canada, a lot of these things are automatic. We only bring Canadian dollars to the store. The kingdom of God, of course, is something that we are progressively growing in, which we're going to talk about today. But the idea is, if you are in this kingdom, you have to be aware of what the kingdom's parameters or rules are on how things operate. Then what is it like to live in this kingdom? We would say it's a kingdom of submission and safety. So part of being uh, in a kingdom is being willing to submit to those who are in charge of the kingdom. So in our case, you know, we have a parliament, we have prime minister, we have a, a premier, and et cetera, all the different governmental systems that we have. We submit to their authority because we want to live here. And in turn, they give us safety, things like military safety or financial safety or any, uh, things like police or firefighters, these sorts of things. The same is true with the kingdom of God. If you are in the kingdom of God, you are necessarily submitting to the king, Jesus, the ruler who says, here's how things are. I don't really care what you think about it because I'm the king you're going to submit to that. But in turn, you get safety. Uh, the way that the Bible talks about Jesus' kingdom is like a fortified city, like a fortress. So there are walls around the city that protect from any sort of invaders. That's also true with the kingdom of God. You have the protection of not just God, but the angels. You have pastors who are put in authority over you to be shepherds for you. You have that kind of safety. You also have the providence that God gives and the promise that he's going to make all things work out for your good and ultimately save you completely in heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. All of that is promised in the submission to the kingdom of God. And so these four characteristics are just important for us to have in our minds that you are either in or you are out and that it's going to affect everything in your life because you are submitting to the ruler, the king, who is offering you safety and security in his kingdom. Now, all of that comes through the gospel, which is preached to you because as Jesus says, his kingdom is not of this world. It's not a defined place in the ground. It's a kingdom of words. And so where his words are being preached and his words are being accepted and believed, that's where the kingdom is. So I could say more about that, but for the, for the time being, we're going to stop there and dig into the text about the kingdom and how these parables explain what the kingdom is like as it starts to grow. Uh, the first of the parables is the parable of the lamp. And so I'll read the text again for us since it's, it's pretty short. 
He says, do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. Okay, so what is Jesus saying? Uh, Very basically, he's saying, if you have a lamp and it is on fire, it would be foolish and contrary to the design of the lamp to put it under a bowl or a basket. Like I said to the kids in the children's message, that's a foolish thing to do to a lamp. And so we have to understand that's the basic idea. Jesus is saying there is a thing that has an essential element, what it is, and you should not act contrary to that essential element. So let's break apart the pieces. What's a lamp? What does he mean by lamps? Uh, The best place to go for this would be Matthew 5. So Jesus uses this exact same phrase where he says, uh, you should not put a lamp under a bowl, but he explains it a little more and says to the disciples, you are the light of the world. And so what he means in Matthew and therefore also what he means in Mark is that the lamps are representative of Christians. We are those who have been ignited, if you want to use that word, by the Holy Spirit, enlivened, enlightened with God's word. But the lampstand is also part of this. The lampstand uh, uh, consistently across the Bible is the picture of the church. So you have lampstands in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus uses the lampstand as a picture of the church. And so very basically, Jesus is saying, if you have a lamp, if you have a Christian, you put it into a church, a lampstand, where it can be most highly effective rather than covering it with a bowl. Now, before we move on from this point, a, a very quick tangent the Bible expects that Christians will be in churches, right? You put a lamp on its lampstand. It's just what you do. That's wise. And I think we need to hear that because we forget in our North American culture that wants us to think Christianity or faith is just a personal choice that I personally do on my own time. And I'm not really accountable to anybody else on that choice that that the Bible would totally disagree with that. Like being a Christian is being in a congregation. There are numerous, a hundred commands from the Bible that say that you should love or pray for or forgive or be generous with one another. And if you don't have one another's to do those commands to, you can't follow those commands. So just a good thing for us to remember, like being part of the church, being a Christian requires that we are going to be around other Christians and we're going to be serving with them and serving them. But let's move on and get back to more what Jesus's focus here is with the lamps. What does a lamp do? Well, a lamp brings light to dark places, right? So what are some dark places into which Christians could slash slash should be lamps? I'm sure at this time in the world's history, you can think of a number of places where there is darkness that could have light in it, but I'm just going to give you three for our meditation for today. Uh, Those are loneliness, uncertainty, and fear. So loneliness. People are Lonely. Loneliness was the pandemic before the pandemic. In 2016, StatsCan released that 50% of Canadians live by themselves or with only one other person in their house. 50% of Canadians live with one or fewer people. If you look at the latest research on Gen Z and millennials, basically anybody under the age of 35, they would report that they have less than five good friends on the average and less than two best friends or real confidence. The idea is that they just don't have that many close relationships anymore. We're lonely people. And if you've ever felt lonely, you know that that's an extreme form of darkness. Even before we were forced to sit in our houses by ourselves without contact. So how could Christians, lamps on lampstands, be light in that dark part of the world? 
I think we all know that that Jesus said, love your neighbor. Uh, But when he was asked to explain that, he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, which essentially teaches that your neighbor is whoever is right in front of you and needs you. And so I just want to ask a couple questions about how we shine our light as we love our neighbors. Have you ever had a situation where you've been sitting in your house with your kids or your spouse or your siblings in a room with you while you all looked at your phone? Is that congruent with what Jesus says about loving your neighbor? Like listening to the stories that are far away rather than loving the person who's right in front of you? Maybe to say it more pointedly, your eyes spend more time looking at a phone than looking into your sibling or your spouse or your kid's eyes. How about about this one? How many of us know more about what's going on in Ottawa or Washington than what's going on with our next door neighbor? How many of us know what policies are affecting an entire country rather than how they're affecting the people who live on our street? Look, I'm not saying that you have to gather people into groups in your house. I realize there are rules against that right now, but you could talk to your neighbor in the driveway. You could call somebody and just have a conversation. You could go on a socially distanced walk. You can help people who are suffering with loneliness right now. I know many of them. I talk to them. It's a tough time for everybody, but God has made us lights, lamps, in this dark part of the world. What about uncertainty? A lot of people uncertain right now. Depends on which news source you listen to, who you follow on Twitter, you'll have a different opinion about the issues of the day. So people have basically given up in many cases. I'm not really sure what to believe, so I'm just going to go on with my uncertainty. But again, any psychologist will tell you, living with uncertainty is really unhealthy for you. How could Christians, lamps on lampstands, bring light into that darkness? What if as individuals and as a congregation, we were willing to step out of all the conversations of the world where one side says this and one side says that, and we would say, we actually have a completely different outlook. That we don't care if the left is on top or the right is on top because Jesus is on top of both of them. That we don't care if the restrictions get tighter or the restrictions get looser because our chains of sin have been loosed forever. We don't care if we have a totalitarian government or a free society because we have been made free in Christ. We don't fear what they could do to us because they can't take our life or anything else from us eternally. What if rather than arguing for one side or the other, we would argue for Jesus? Maybe we could help people realize that, yeah, there is a lot of uncertainty in the world, but there are some things that are certain. And they're even outside of those conversations and inform all of them. What about fear? A lot of people are afraid right now. Whether you're afraid for your life, from a virus, maybe from a police officer. Whether you're afraid for your goods. You're afraid that the stock market might crash or the housing bubble might pop. That your investments are not going to last you all the way through your retirement. Or that you might have to work and never retire. You're worried about getting out of your parents' house or having a good enough job to sustain yourself once you do get out of your parents' house. Maybe you're worried about your family, worried about your kids. You see what's on their phones. You see what's in the schools. You're worried about that. 
Maybe you're worried about your reputation. You fear what cancel culture can do to a person. You fear what being a Christian is going to mean in this society moving forward. A lot of darkness there. How could Christians, lamps on lampstands, bring light into that situation? Maybe it could be by remembering that they can't take our life. We're immortal right now. Our eternal life has already started. The moment that we breathe our last here is just a doorway to another eternal existence that is far better. And they can't take our goods. Jesus says anyone who has lost anything for the kingdom of God will receive a hundred times that, not just in this kingdom, like right now, but in the kingdom to come. What about your family? You remember that no matter how much you love your kids, your God loves them more. He was willing to die for them. And then he baptized them into that death. And he's going to be faithful to them. Are you worried about your reputation? Do you know that the almighty God, the creator and redeemer and sustainer of heaven and earth has called you a son or a daughter? It reminds me of the the hymn that Martin Luther wrote, famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, in which the last verse he says, take they our life, goods, fame, reputation, child or wife, all these could be gone. But the victory is still won because the kingdom is ours forever. Now, does that mean that we don't protect our life and make good decisions? No. Does that mean that we don't protect our kids and teach them about what it means to be a Christian? No. Does that mean that we make dumb financial decisions or post dumb things on Facebook? No. But it does mean that we don't have to live in fear of those things. And when we show people that we don't have to live in fear of those things, we become a light into those dark places. Uh, To summarize it, the kingdom of God comes through Christians shining brightly. That's what Jesus wants you to understand. This kingdom that is coming like seeds sown in the path is going to be illuminated through Christians, lamps on lampstands. But if you're facing a temptation right now, and that's to put that lamp under a bowl, I worry that Christians are tempted right now to batten down the hatches of Christianity. To say, you know, wait till there's the vaccine or, or wait till whatever, fix, fill in the blank. And frankly, friends, that's not Christianity. That's cowardice. I'm not saying you need to break rules that are made for us, but I am saying that being a Christian doesn't stop. You're a lamp today. You're a lamp in your home. You're a lamp on online meetings. You're a lamp in what you post on Facebook. You're a lamp at all times. And maybe more than any, than any time, at least in my lifetime, Christians need to be lights in the world. And so one last point on the lamps. Um, There are really two ways that you can organize lamps. I don't consider myself an interior decorator, but I know enough to be dangerous. Uh, One way that you can set up lamps is spread them out. You want to cover a large space. So you're going to spread out the lamps. They're going to light up the area. I wonder if God has spread us out as lamps in this city for the same reason. It's a big area with a lot of darkness but he spread out these lamps in different parts of the city with different relationships so that light can be shown into dark places. Your neighbors are not my neighbors, but God wants somebody to love them. The other way you can organize lights is all together in one place. Think stadium lighting, right? All, a whole bunch of lights all together focused on one place so that it is extremely illuminated. When the Christian church gathers together, Our lights are all combined to illuminate the savior we know who has died and has risen again to guarantee our justification so that all of these things that we said can be true about us as lamps in the world. 
See, Jesus has died and Jesus has risen to make you a lamp. He has put the Holy Spirit in you. He has given you these opportunities. He has given you the oil if you want to push the metaphor a little bit farther. And he's kept you burning so that you can be a light. Don't let that light go under a bowl. The second parable is the parable of the measure. So again, I'll read it for us and then we'll talk about it. He says, consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So the picture that he wants you to have in your mind here is measuring out like grain. So think, you know, you're going to the marketplace and a person wants to buy a kilogram of of grain from you. And so you measure out the kilo and you give it to them. Um, Jesus is saying, when the message of the kingdom of God comes to you, to the amount to which you measure it out to other people, it will be measured back to you. Now, admittedly, the grammar is a little bit bit difficult here for us. So I'm going to try to simplify this idea for you. Um, What Jesus is saying is the extent to which you talk about the kingdom of God to other people shows how much you value it. And I think this is a particularly difficult thing for North Americans because whether you want to trace it back to neo-Gnosticism or Cartesian philosophy or Aristotle or Plato, it doesn't matter. We have this idea in our, in our society that the body and the soul or the spirit are two separate things. That, that my body doesn't determine who I am. My, my mind or my soul or my spirit determines who I am. And I'm sure you can think of a number of applications of how that plays out in our society. But one of them that I think is particularly dangerous for Christians is that we believe that we can believe something without having our body act accordingly to it. You understand the idea? So we think that we can believe a truth without acting on that truth. And that is a very modern assumption. That's not how the majority of the world works. I mean, just trace back to every world religion. Every world religion has a physical element to it. So you can think of like, you know, Muslims on the ground, prostrate, uh, praying during the prayers every day. Or you can think of Hindus with yoga, or you can even think of Christianity with standing or sitting or kneeling or folding your hands or whatever. Like a physical element is always part of a world religion. And that's because your body is who you are and how you treat your body. What you do with your body shows what you believe. Jesus is calling us out for that. And he's saying, you can say you believe whatever you want to believe. But what your body does, that actually tells the truth. We intuitively know this. We just only apply it to other people. We say things like, actions speak louder than words. We never say that about ourselves. (laughs) We only say it about other people. Because if we're doing something particularly virtuous, we're ready to tell everybody. We're self-justifiers in that way. But when it comes to other people, we say actions speak louder than words because we believe this to be true. We just don't want it to be true about us because we want to deceive ourselves. So Jesus is calling us out. He says, do you believe this? Does your life show that you believe it? If you believe the amazing message that God died for your sins to guarantee you that you will not go to hell, but you will go to heaven instead. Like, isn't that going to come out of your mouth? The uh, magician Penn from Penn and Teller is this great quote that I I love. I'm going to paraphrase it for you because I don't have it written down in front of me. But essentially what he says is if you believe, and by the way, he's an atheist. If you believe that the gospel offers me eternal life and the alternative is I'm going to burn in hell forever and you don't tell me about it, you must really hate me. I think we need to hear that. It's really easy for us to say we're Christians, but let's evaluate our lives and say, is that actually true? 
No, we're not saved by works. We're not saved because we show up, because we talk about Jesus or any of these sorts of things, but it's a really good barometer as to what's going on in your heart. But Jesus gives you some comfort in this text as well. Uh, Remember back in the text, he says that whoever has will be given more and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. What he's saying there is if you hear this message and it convicts your heart, you hear that and you say, that's right. I do believe this and my life has not been in accord with that. He says, you're doing fine. You still believe you are still saved and I will continue to give you my word and you will grow in it. Remember, he's not pointing you back to your works. He's saying, if you realize that your works are insufficient, I will continue to give you the gospel. And so then back to the beginning of the text, he says, consider carefully what you hear. When I speak, listen. It's easy for Christians to sit back in their chairs on a Sunday morning and hear about the forgiveness of sins and say, yeah, cool. I love forgiveness of sins on board with that. Oh, and it promises me heaven. Super, totally into it but not to realize the gravity of what is being spoken to us. So consider carefully what you hear because the measure to which it comes out of you is indicative of the measure to which you have put in your own heart. To put a summary statement on it, if you're taking notes with us, how you measure out the gospel to others shows how highly you regard it. The third parable is the parable of the growing seed. Again, we'll read the text. He also says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Okay, so what is he talking about? He's he's drawing our minds to the idea of a plant growing, which if you just sit and meditate on the idea of a plant growing from a seed, it's a pretty amazing idea, right? You can take this little thing that by all accounts is dead and put it into some more dead stuff, soil. And just by adding water, suddenly organic life is coming out of it. And it, and it continues to grow and propagate itself from those same pieces. Now I'm sure a botanist would explain that far better than I did, but as you just look at it from the surface, it's an amazing thing that plants grow. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is kind of like that. It seems to be a couple dead things that come together and somehow they create this amazing organic growing life. Uh, The basic principle here is that the kingdom of God is going to experience progressive and organic growth. But you can apply this both in a personal way and a corporate way. So first of all, in a personal way, what God is saying is that the kingdom of God is going to grow in your heart progressively and organically. To give you an example of this, if you have a spouse and you look at your spouse every day, Uh, you're probably not going to notice changes in how they behave day to day. But if you would look at maybe the last five or 10 or 20 years of marriage with your spouse, you will notice that there were some big changes that happened over that time. The same thing is true with Christians. If I see you week to week, um, I'm probably not going to notice much change, but years or decades over time, I'm going to see amazing change because that's how the kingdom of God works. And I would say that, I mean, even in my short three years here as your pastor, I've seen some amazing organic growth happen in many of your lives. Um, It's a beautiful thing. That should remind us that Jesus, of course, is doing this work for us. It's not something that, that we are growing in by our effort, just like a plant doesn't grow by its own effort. It grows because there is something that is organic happening in it. Uh, But then we should also apply it to a corporate setting. And by corporate, I mean as a congregation. Uh, That the kingdom of God is going to grow organically. 
We get this in our heads that we think that like what makes a church grow is like really fantastic preaching or programs or advertisements or, or like all these great other bells and whistles that make a church really a fun experience to go to. And while those things aren't bad, they aren't the thing that grows the plant, right? If you have miracle grow, miracle grow is going to help the plant grow, but it's not the thing that actually makes the plant grow. Right? It may add a little bit of fuel to the fire, and that's a good thing. But what we always want to understand is that God is doing the work of growing our church. It's not because I'm a particularly good preacher, or you're particularly good members, or we have particularly good stuff going on at our church. God is going to grow his kingdom organically over time. And again, as you look at our congregation over longer periods of time, you can see this organic growth happening. I want to say more about that, but I'm going to leave it for the takeaways at the end. So let's get into the fourth parable. This is the parable of the mustard seed. He says, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. So what's the picture? He wants us to think about mustard seeds, which if you have like a piece of paper in front of you, they're about the size of a period. Real small seeds. Uh, But what they grow into are these like six foot tall or so bushes. Um, and it, what's amazing about them is not just the fact that they're so big, but they grow that entire six foot, six feet over one growing season. So Jesus' point is the kingdom of God is going to start very small and it's going to grow massive in surprising ways. Um, that's, if you want to write down something, that's kind of the idea. The kingdom of God is going to experience surprising growth. Uh, just historically, we can see that this is true. The kingdom of God started with one man, Jesus of Nazareth, preaching this message of the kingdom of God. And then his 11 friends that followed after him and preached that same message. And yet in 300 years, this idea, this message of the kingdom of God completely took over the Roman empire. And not just in being the national religion, but also in the way that people thought about how they operated. Even if they weren't Christians, many of the things that we think are ubiquitous in culture today were started by Christians in that day. I want to give you three examples of this. I'm going to tell you three things. And each of them seems like things that are just totally normal. You're going to be like, well, that's what every free society has. But they actually weren't things until the Christians started them. The kingdom of God brought them. Uh, They are equality of individuals, humanitarianism, and ethnic diversity. So first, equality of individuals. Uh, Last week, I said this, but worth saying again, that Christianity is the only world religion that offers unequivocal, unconditional, complete salvation to every person, regardless of age, gender, uh, uh, ethnicity, education, or behavioral ability. Uh, In every other world religion, you have to hit one of those metrics, not Christianity. Christianity is grace completely. And because that was the Christian worldview and still is the Christian worldview, um, Christians were the first people to say that everybody is equal. Like a a woman is is just as valuable as a man. A a child is just as valuable as an adult. A person with a different skin color from a different nation is just as valuable as my people from my nation. They were the first people to say this. Second, I said humanitarianism. Uh, There was humanitarianism that was happening before the Christians, but the Christians were the first ones to do it altruistically. The idea being that they weren't doing it for an economic or political or social reason. They were doing it simply because they believed that was the right thing to do and they had to do it and they would be willing to do it even at their own expense. Christians were the ones who started hospitals, started orphanages, started resource gathering places for people in need. Uh, They were willing to give of themselves, even if it disadvantaged themselves for the sake of those who did not have much. And then third, I said ethnic diversity. 
Uh, did you know that the Christian church was not called Christianity right away? They called themselves the way. But the name Christian comes from a city in Anti- called Antioch on the Mediterranean Sea, where they were first called by that name because they were so ethnically diverse. So up to that point in the world's history, who you worshipped was essentially tied to who you were ethnically. So if you were an African, you worship these gods. If you were Roman, you worship these gods. If you were a Jew, you worship this god. Um, but all of a sudden in the city of Antioch, there were people from all different cultures, all different nations, different ethnicities coming together and worshiping this same guy, Jesus Christ. And the culture didn't know what to do with that. Because no longer could you just say, well, the Africans worship this because there were some Africans who were worshiping Jesus. And, and you couldn't just say the Jews worship this guy because some of the Jews are worshiping Jesus and so on. So they made up this new name, Christian. Like the name Christian is an inherently ethnically diverse name. And those qualities, those, those values that now seem just normal to us, they were brought by the kingdom of God. The preaching and action of one man and his 11 friends that followed after him, which now has pervaded across the entire world. See, the kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed. It starts really small and grows really big. And we see that also in our society, in our culture today, as we think about the work of this church over its about 20 year history, how just a couple people met together for word, for sacrament, who held on to the word even decades before Pastor Joel came here and started what is now Cross of Life. And that has grown into more than 100 people who call Cross of Life their church home. Many great relationships, which many of you experience. Amazing ways that we have been able to reach out to our community, the property that we own, the resources that we have. All of that is the work of something really, really small. So those are the four parables. Now I want to give you six takeaways. Six sounds like a big number, I realize, but don't worry, they're going to come quickly. Um, The first is to remember that you are always a lamp. I kind of touched on this in the lamp section, but as Christians, we cannot compartmentalize our life. Uh, We cannot say, this is where I'm going to be a Christian, act like a Christian, do Christian things, say Christian words. That has to be all the time. Otherwise, we are a lamp underneath a bowl. We are not only being of no use to the people around us, we are stifling our own Christian life. So remember that whether you're at the grocery store or you're at work or you're at home, you are a lamp. And people evaluate a lamp based on whether it's actually giving light to other things. And the same is true of Christians. Number two, I would encourage you to know your story. Um, one of the toughest things to help people understand is that every one of us has a, a meta narrative. So meta narrative is like a big story that we're telling ourselves that we are a part of. And so maybe your meta narrative is, you know, I'm just trying to get through school or my meta narrative is, um, you know, I'm trying to uh, get a good job or I'm, I'm trying to stay in my job. My meta narrative is, you know, if you want to think of it from an atheistic point of worldview, it's, you know, I'm, a, I'm an accident of evolution just here to try to maybe make the world a better place or enjoy as many things as I can. Your meta narrative is going to shape how you make every decision of your life. God says, know your meta narrative as being part of the plan of salvation. And this plays into, first of all, the lamps and then also the measures. Because what God is saying is, I'm telling you a meta narrative, a beautiful meta narrative about how we as a, as, a, as a human race have rebelled against God, but God has reconciled us to himself by the death of his son that we can receive through faith. And because of that, we are free. We are completely free from sin. We are free from obligation. We have freedom to be the best citizens and neighbors and friends and family members that we can possibly be because of that. 
And we get all of it with no fear of losing it and the promise that it's going to get better later. He says, that's your story. So consider carefully what you hear and then live in line with that story. I think very often our problem is that we think we're in a different story. We think we're in the story that the media news cycle is giving us. We think we're in the story of what our parents said about us, but we're in a different story. We're in the big meta narrative of, of scripture of the plan of salvation from God. Third, be patient with God. Now, this has to do with the parable of the growing seeds. So I think we lose this because we're an urban church with urban people and very few of us do gardening. Although some of you I know are gardeners and you're going to love this part. Um, but taking, uh, t- plants take a while to grow. It's just the nature of things. And there's really no shortcut with it, right? And, and so the, what you have to do is just put in the daily hard work to see that growth. Be patient with God because God is putting in the daily, daily work to help you grow. I think we want God to answer our prayers like that, fix things that are in our lives like that, but God doesn't work that way. He says the kingdom of God comes like organic progressive growth, like a plant. So what if it is the case that like you are in like a 15 year long project that God is doing on your life and that he's just doing step by step by step and like in 10 years or seven years or whatever, he's going to have finished that project and then and you're going to be who he wanted you to be. Can you think that way? Can you think that the suffering that you're going through right now is God working on you, working the soil, if you will? Be patient with him. He's doing a lot more than you would expect. And then also I would encourage you to think about the habits of a Christian as you work down that path. Um, Again, there's no shortcut to Christian growth, but what the old theologians would say were probably the best methods for growing in your faith are what are called the spiritual disciplines. So spiritual disciplines are just these daily practices that you are doing that are helping you down that path of organic growth. Um, And just to give you a couple of the common ones, in case you don't have really a concept for that, they would say like regular worship, regular Bible study, regular prayer, regular Christian community, regular Sabbath days, regular fasting. Those are basically the spiritual disciplines. Like if you're putting in that work day to day, you're going to grow. That's just what the Bible says. Now, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian if you don't do those things, but it does mean that if you want to grow in this, this is the way it happens. Fourth, be patient with others. It's easy for us to look at another person and see all the negative qualities and say, that's not in line with scripture. And I wish they were different. And I wish they'd change. And, um, and God says, be patient with those people because they are organically growing. You'd be surprised at how people grow over years of being in God's word. I especially struggle with this as a pastor. Like I want all of you to be like the best possible Christians like right now. (laughs) And I want that on myself too. And that's unrealistic. Like God says, this is progressive. Be patient, continue to forgive, continue to pray, continue to sacrifice. I'm thinking particularly of some of you who I know like right now you are in conflict with somebody else. Maybe they live in your house. Maybe they're a close friend. Maybe there's somebody online. You're in a conflict and you want that person to change. Now, obviously, if there's a case of abuse or something like this, you need to get out. But in many cases, what's needed is just the patience of sacrifice and forgiveness day after day. And you'll be amazed at the progressive growth that God can do in a person by those means. Number five, grow strong branches. I left one part of the teaching out because I wanted to focus on it right here. And that was those branches with the birds. And we talked about them in Ezekiel 17. God says the kingdom is going to grow like a mustard seed into a mustard plant, a a six foot tall bush so that birds can perch in its branches. And I think there's no doubt in my mind, at least that, that he's thinking back to Ezekiel 17. 
He's saying that the Christian church, as it grows into this amazing thing, is going to be strong enough to hold people coming in, the nations coming in. Of course, in a first century sense, Jesus was saying this to his disciples. And what he meant was, it's not just going to be Jews who are going to be saved. It's going to be all nations. But as we think about it now, what what God is saying is grow strong branches. Because I want to bring more people into your church. But if you can't support them, they're not going to stay long. I think if we think of our church that way, that like what's going to help us grow is that we are going to be able to receive anyone who comes in and not just say, Hey, you can show up for church on Sunday, but we're going to be in your life, giving you, um, giving you love and prayers and, and kindness. And we're going to be talking to you. We're going to include you in our life. We're going to grow a friendship with you, support you, not just with the gospel, but with our lives in general. Like if we were capable of that as a congregation, we would never lose anyone who comes to our church. Grow strong branches so the birds can land here. And then finally, remember that God grows the kingdom. Uh, This is a really practical text. There's a lot of stuff in this and maybe you've been writing this down and you maybe have to go back and listen to this again to get all the different pieces. There's a lot of practical stuff in here about how the church grows and and what we should do in order to help that along and so on. But the big overarching picture of all of this is that God grows it all. And that that's God's grace to us. Lamps are passive, right? They are filled with oil by somebody else. They are lit on fire by somebody else. When you hear the word, you are passive. Listen carefully, but you're passive. Somebody speaks to you. It's a pastor or a friend or an open Bible. A seed grows passively. It has to be put into the ground and given the resources necessary to grow. And a mustard seed grows passively by the things that are around it into an amazing plant. And so let's remember, this is all about God. While there are practical things for us, this is not about us. This is about what God does through us. So as we think about what it means to be the kingdom of God moving forward, let's pray that God continues to do his work among us. Let's pray for that now. God, thank you for working in the hearts of the people who call themselves cross of life. That though some of them are mature plants, some are just growing plants, you continue to give them the resources necessary to grow. You're doing that in my life. I'm seeing that in the lives of the people that I serve. We praise you for that because we could not do it ourselves. We ask also that you would grow us into a strong plant that can support anyone who comes into this congregation with love and kindness and generosity and inclusion because we want more people to be saved and we want to be, them to be saved through us. We want the kingdom of God to grow here. God, your kingdom come. Amen.